Welcome to Brooklyn's Members TV and Podcasts. I'm Steve Clark, and I'm delighted to be joined today by the motorsport writer, journalist and broadcaster Simon Taylor, and by the author of over 50 books, the former Formula One correspondent for The Independent and British Land Speed Record driver David Tremaine. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Hi. Hi, Steve. Um, Gentlemen, we're here to discuss David's republished book from 2010, Uncrowned King of Formula One. So, Simon and David, let's find out more about this remarkable uncrowned king. Thank you, Steve. Well, I'm going to jump in first because, David, I am a huge fan, although we've been friends for a very long time. Uh, I've read, I'm not sure I've read all 50 of your books, um, but I've certainly read a lot of them. And one of your great skills is that as a biographer of a racing driver, you bring out the human being. When you have a biography of a racing driver, inevitably it has to list all the races. It has to talk about him coming up from his early start all the way through his Formula One career. Um, but you managed to avoid the book being merely a catalogue. You, you've won awards for your recent um, brilliant biography of Jim Clark. But Jochen Rindt is particularly dear to me. I'm a little bit older than you, and I was covering Formula One um, at the time that Jochen reigned. Yep. Uh, and I remember, I, I can't say I knew him well, but I certainly hobnobbed with him in the paddock quite a lot because you could do that quite easily in those days. And he was a quite extraordinary man. I was a huge fan. I loved seeing him beat, as it was then, the more established stars like, uh, uh, like Jackie Stewart, and, and particularly in Formula Two. I used to cover his Formula Two races. And it was wonderful in those days when Formula One drivers also did Formula yeah. Two. Yeah. You could see uh, that he was beating them all. Um, and that, that was astonishing. But would you agree that certainly in this country, I don't know about in Austria, Jochen Rindt hasn't really had uh, the, the notice that he deserves among racing driver heroes. I mean, lots of books about Jim Clark, Graham Hill, Jackie Stewart. Jochen Rindt is almost a forgotten man, even though he won that great world championship 50 years ago. Yeah, I think that was part of the um, motivation to do the book, to be honest. I mean, it's funny, is if you came up with 20 top racing drivers, if you had to do a list, you'd have Jimmy and Jackie there, wouldn't you? But I think a lot of people wouldn't have Jochen. And when you think Jochen could put on his day, beat both of them, that's nonsensical, isn't it? But also is another reason why you can't really compare eras. But yeah, I, I think Jochen was dramatically underwritten, to be honest. And dramatically also uh, a man to watch. Um, I mean, I mentioned those Formula Two races, and I know that people are much more interested in his Formula One career, but it was in Formula Two that he really came to notice and astonished us. There was an amazing weekend, which you described brilliantly in your, week, in your, uh, in your book when uh, he turned up almost as a complete unknown. There was a weekend which went from Mallory Park to Crystal Palace. He made a bad start in the Mallory Park race, as you 
uh, as you say, and still finished third with Jim Clark, the winner. But then they had to rush away from Mallory Park to get to Crystal Palace to do the race there. And that's where he dominated. I was at the Mallory Park meeting. Um, I, met, I went with a friend of mine whom you will know, Ian Titchmarsh, who was very knowledgeable about Formula Junior and all the sort of minor people across Europe. And he said, we were both at Cambridge at the time, and he said, we've got to hitchhike to Mallory Park and see this guy. We absolutely, and I've never forgotten it. It was sensational. Now you mention in your book that you were a Jochenrint fan, even as quite a young lad. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's interesting, isn't it? Because he had this reputation for being arrogant and everything else, and he looked quite imperious with that flattened nose. Um, and so I was a little bit weary, let's say. You know, it was like Graham Hill, you often thought, what would I do if I bumped into Graham Hill, if I met him? Because at that time, you know, I was a kid, I wasn't working. And you sort of think, oh my God, you know, what would you do, what would you do? And Joachim was one of those that you would have been most wary of approaching. And yet the more I wrote in the book and the more I researched, the more people I talked to, he came across as a far, far warmer character. Mm. It was only, I think, arrogant with people like Jenks, for example, that he didn't like. And if, if, if he didn't like you, I don't think you were ever left in any doubt. But you, know, you talked to Jackie about him. Jackie absolutely adored him. You know, and they were, again, as a kid, you'd imagine them to be like this, wouldn't you? As big rivals. And it came as a shock to learn just how good mates they were. Writing a biography of a man who is dead, uh, but only recently dead, you're able to bring the book alive by talking to people who knew him, who raced against him. And very movingly, you've talked to people like Nina Rent, his wife. You've talked to Bernie Eccleston, who was, of course, his manager at a time when not a lot of people knew the name Bernie Eccleston. It was before his kind of rise to um, the imperial role that he held in, in Formula One. And talking to, as you've done, to the mechanics, to the other drivers, the thing that really came over to me is that there was an enormous amount of respect for him, whether yeah, you and affection well or whether you didn't. I think affection too. I mean, the Bernie thing was funny because um, he'd always agreed that he would do it. There was never any question of that, but it was a matter of, okay, when are we gonna do this? And we were in China in, I guess, 2000, I think when it was. But we were there and it was, okay, look, I really need to sit down with you today or this, this weekend. So, right, okay, so phone's off, we go in a room, door's locked, and an hour later we both came out sort of going, well, yeah. like that. And it wasn't just Jochen, because we talked about Jochen all the time. And then at the end, what I don't think I actually knew before was that he managed Pedro for the last couple of months of his life. Yeah. And of course, Pedro was my first race driver hero. So it was, it was quite emotional and it was nice because that's the real Bernie. You know, that's Bernie the racer remembering his mate, same as if he was talking about Lewis Evans or Pache or whatever. But I thought, I can imagine Jochen and Bernie being super good friends because they were both razor sharp when it came to business. But obviously there was a huge affection between the two of them as well. 
And of course, as you explained, um, <clears throat> Jochen was in two minds during 1970 when it started to look as though he was going to win the World Championship. He was in two minds as to whether to stop at the end of the year once he got the title. And Nina was very, very keen that he should. And he then decided that he was going to earn so much money during his year as reigning world champion. Couldn't afford to stop. One more year. But what you point out is that he had a very sharp business brain. He was very friendly with Bernie Eccleston. And clearly there would have been some sort of business relationship between them. You can imagine Joachim yeah. going on becoming a fabulously wealthy man because he was so clever. But also I could imagine him and Bernie doing what Bernie did. You know, Joachim moving up with them as Bernie gradually came to take over Formula One and to run it. That wouldn't have surprised me in the slightest. And that would have been Jochen's way of um, safeguarding himself and retiring. I mean, that whole retirement thing's fascinating. I think my, my personal feeling is he would have carried on for another year. And then if he'd had a good year, maybe he'd have carried on again. Um, I mean, I, I'm still trying to figure out Roy Winkleman's assertion that he would have gone NASCAR. Because I don't think Joachim was overly impressed with that old oh, piece of crap they drove boggles, that Jimmy were going to share yeah. in 1967. But I just can't imagine Joachim going and living there and doing that. You seem to imply, though, that towards the end, um, he was becoming a little bit more jaundiced about driving around in circles every fortnight. Um, he, he was, was jaundiced about the, the problems he was having at Lotus mm. and anything else. I think he'd stopped enjoying it from that point of view. Well, you mean because the Lotus were fragile? Well, just because of the whole thing. You know, he and Chapman made their peace, but they were bosom pals. I think if, I mean, the irony is if he'd gone back to Brabham for 1970, he would have won the championship in that car as well. Yeah, I'm sorry. And it would probably have been John Surtees in the Lotus. And John and Colin would not have got on, would they? There are an awful lot of what-ifs in Formula Especially 1. Especially if there were problems with the car to yeah. begin with. I mean, imagine Chapman and Surtees. So they'd have tied each other up in knots while sure Jochen would. drove a beautiful handling car and, you know, probably you would have won four you, or five races. In the book, you understandably devote a lot of time both to the 1970 season, which was so important and also so tragic. Um, and then actually the whole description of that Monza weekend, and I had tears in my eyes because um, I, I remember, it, for me, it was like the, the, the sort of gasp and the feeling of disbelief that you heard, you, that you felt when you heard Jim Clark had died. And it was on the same level as that to me. Um, and Jim Clark was in Lotus. There were endless discussions afterwards as to whether he had simply made a mistake. Jim Clark didn't often make mistakes, or whether the car had broken. And obviously, despite what various people like Peter War maintained, that he'd just he'd lost it in a car that was intrinsically aerodynamically unbalanced. What's your view? Did that front brake shaft break? I'm damn sure a front brake shaft shear. Mm. It's the same thing that happened to John Miles. And, mm. you know, it, was a, it was a known problem on that car. And 
if you read Peter Jowell's report and everything else, it suggests the same thing if you talk to some people at Lotus, they're adamant. And I mean, I don't think it helped at all that the car, you know, they were pushing to run without wings and everything else in the car that was specifically designed to have them. You know, it wasn't like the 1969 version of the 49, which had been designed without wings and then had them added. This, this was designed from the outset to run with them. Yeah. I mean, it was like a perfect storm, wasn't it? Also, um, something, all, in, something which additionally makes it um, a sort of heartbreaking scenario is that in a way that you couldn't conceive of in Formula One today, 40, 50 years later, the friendship between particularly those three drivers, Jackie Stewart, Piers Courage, and Jochen Rindt, and their wives, and the fact that they went on holiday together, they spent time together, and particularly the wives were very close. And when Piers got killed in July, it was Nina who supported her, who supported Sally Courage. And then, of course, when Jochen was killed, uh, you point out in your book that Helen went to see Nina Rins. They both lived in Switzerland. She went to see him every single day. Yeah. And Nina said that it must have been so terrible for Helen because her husband was alive, yeah. but he was still risking his neck every two weeks. And it was Helen who cleared Jochen's room. Really? And actually, there's a... I don't think I... I don't think I knew this story when I wrote the book, but Jochen, we stay at the Hotel de la Ville at Monza. It's our treat to ourselves every year. And it probably costs the equivalent of three other races, hotel accommodation to stay there, but it's the most wonderful place. And we were talking in the bar one night to the owners and room 307 was the room that Jochen had that weekend. <clears throat> and then they were absolutely horrified when three years later, Renzo Passerini and um, Jano Saarinen were killed in the bike race at Monza. And they suddenly realized to their horror that they put him in room 307. Confirmed. So now they have it an absolute that they never, ever rent that room to a racing driver. Really? Yeah. And when we were being told this story, two of the FIA guys, we were with, said, well, I'm in 306 and I'm in 307. Who's in, th uh, I'm in 308. Who's in 307? And it turned out to be Tim Mayer. Good heavens. Tim was actually not feeling very well that weekend. So everyone's going, oh, you know, Twilight's on your doom being in that room. But how spooky was that? That these two, Saren and should have stayed in that room and so did Jochen. But racing drivers are superstitious, aren't they? Um, I mean, Jochen had this thing about number 21, because I think, uh, as you point out in the book, he, he, he'd worn 21 when he had one of his first victories, and he always liked the number 21, not unlike Sterling Moss liking number seven. Yeah, but now they all tend to have the numbers they want, don't they? Of course, of course. Great thing about uh, Jochen seems to me i mean having watched him initially as a spectator and then as a working journalist we all know that alain prost the professor looked almost slow because he was so precise and his car control was so perfect and we used to say that about 
Jim Clark, and maybe to a lesser extent, Jackie Stewart. But Jochen, you knew he was going fast because the car was- Jochen, Ronnie, Gilles, Tom Bryce. They all defied that, didn't they? Yeah. Somehow. They all defied that thing that, you know, every time you're going sideways, you're going slowly. But what a tragic quartet that is. I'd never thought of this, David, but all four of them died in a racing car. I mean, you know, the thing with Jochen and his style, what I love, I, I always hold up the 1969 British Grand Prix as an example of proper racing driving. With Jackie and Jochen swapping, Jackie reckon they swapped the lead 30 times. Not just, you know, okay, one of them would come around in the lead each lap for a while and then the next one, but they were swapping places left, right and centre, signalling each other when to go by. A, because they could repass, which, okay, more difficult now. But they were, they were running at lap record speed while they were doing that. And to me, that is, that's like um, knights of old. Mm. You know, proper code of conduct, perfect manners and everything else, both going really fast and putting on this fantastic fight for the spectators. You use the word manners, and that was something, a fascinating quote that you have from Jackie Stewart. You obviously talked to Jackie an enormous amount when preparing the book, because Jackie and, and Jochen really were best friends. Uh, and Jackie said, and this initially seems out of kilter with his spectacular driving style, but Jackie said, on the track, Jochen had good manners. Mm. He never, ever puts you in a compromising position. Yeah, and so did Ix. It was really funny because I talked to Ix about Hockenheim, 1970, about that very thing, because they did not like each other. Really? Um, well, because Jochen thought, Jochen thought arrog uh, Jackie was an arrogant little so-and-so, and I think Jackie felt the same about Jochen. Mm. But I started asking Jackie, it was quite funny, because I said, tell me all about that, that fight. So he started saying about, well, the aerodynamics and this and this and this. I said, no, 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 not that bit. What, what was it like? You know, you were swapping places and both of you were giving each other racing room. So I said, okay, yeah, I see what you mean. And explained that despite their animosity, neither of them carved the other one up. I guess you didn't then because the risk was too high. But it was actually very funny because Jackie, having talked... Jackie X having talked about the aerodynamics thing, I said, well, in any case, half of that's your fault. How do you mean? So I said, well, you, your car was one of the first to run with a wing in practice at Spa. And he went, good point. And then I said, I actually saw the first race I ever went to. I saw you running at the Race of Champs in 68. And he was really sweet. He said, did you watch from your pram? <laughs> I wish I had, but sadly, yeah, I was a fair bit beyond perhaps. He, he is the most charming man. Um, and I mean, of course, Jackie X played um, an extraordinary part in the fact that Jochen Rent became posthumous world champion. Yeah. Because again, and this is brilliantly set out in the book, after Jochen was killed, the one person who could still have beaten him on points for the world championship was Jackie X. Mm. And when Jackie retired from uh, the Watkins Glen race, the last race of the season, which meant that Jochen was champion, he said afterwards, according to his, you, how you've quoted him in the book, 
uh, that he was almost relieved because yeah. he thought it would have been wrong yeah. to take the world championship from the Open Race. I think that, you know, that was absolutely genuine. And I like that about him. You know, again, given that they didn't get on, I thought that was a very honourable thing to say. And he was also really pleased that someone was doing a book on Jochen. He was quite excited by it when, yes. when we talked. And I thought, you know, that's something of that era, isn't it? I think that sort of, whether you like people or not, there was a sort of um, camaraderie and chivalry because we are racing drivers and we all know we've got a 30, 35% chance of getting killed. Absolutely. And that was well, an era, wasn't it? That was very, very cruel in that sense. Sure. Well, talking about not getting on with people, uh, we've got to talk about Dennis Jenkinson. Um, because, well, tell, you tell the story about... I just, I just don't get it. For whatever reason, Jenks, in his sort of curmudgeonly way, just took against Jochen. I don't know why. Nobody seems to know why. But he just did not like him. Maybe it was the fur coat and the pink trousers or pink shirts or whatever. But he, he just didn't like him. And he, if you read some of the old motorsports, it's so overly critical. It would be like someone now saying, well, Max Verstappen's never going to make it because there were things he did that you maybe didn't approve of. But Jochen didn't do anything to disapprove of on the track. And given that Jenks loved Gilles, I don't for the life of me understand why he didn't get on with Jochen. And then with sort of, to be fair to Jenks, he did shave his beard having bet Sue well, I don't think he bet Sue Baker, but she happened to be there at the time when a group of the Fleet Street people were there. And Jenks said, I'll shave my beard if he ever wins a Grand Prix. So yeah. she took the money and, you know, he signed something to that effect. And, and of course, he'd said it. I mean, it wasn't just around the paddock. He'd said it in print. He'd said in motorsport that he didn't think Jochen Rint would ever win a Grand Prix. Um, well, the, the little... you, after Spa 66... How could you possibly not think that he would win a Grand Prix? That was the race where he spun in the pool. And reckoned he spun nine times. I don't know if he did, but... And carried um, on. Well, that um, comment of Jenks that he would shave his beard off if Jochen ever won a race. And to be fair to him, when Jochen won... Did. Yep. In, in Watkins Glen, 69, he did. I don't think he shaved... It. I think he cut it. Yes, I think he did. And then didn't the cuttings go on display in the clubhouse at Brown's Hatch? They, they did, but I was editing Autosport at the time and we had the most wonderful cartoonist, Don Grant, who was yes. Grant's son. Yeah, I remember him. And, and his cartoons used to provide uh, a lot of problems and angst uh, around the motor racing fraternity. What he did, uh, the, the very week, Jochen ran, won the Grand Prix on the Sunday, um, October 69. And Don Grant, he didn't do a cartoon every week, but when he felt like it, he would wander into our little editorial office with, uh, his cartoons were very big. He did them in ink, in black ink, mm -hmm. on white cartridge paper, this big. And he arrived with this thing in a tube. And what it was, was Jenks drawn as Toulouse-Lautrec, because Jenks, of course, was very short. So it's a very tall cartoon with this little bearded fellow. You didn't know whether it was Jenks or Toulouse-Lautrec, right down <laughs> in one corner. 
and there was Joachim, very, very tall, with his flat nose and a huge pair of scissors. <laughs> the caption was, so you think I am only going to cut off your beard? <laughs> and we, we ran the cartoon and then I rolled it up in its cardboard tube and sent it to Jochen in, Aust well, in Switzerland, he was living by then. And he sent me back this absolutely charming note, which said, thank you very much for sending the cartoon, which made me laugh a lot. However, I opened the tube with some, uh, he didn't use the word trepidation because his English wasn't quite that good, but he used a similar word. So he opened it very carefully because he was worried that in this long tube, bits of Jenkinson's beard were going to fall out. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, is, is it, it's a cliche now to say that the racing drivers were all closer to each other um, in those days, uh, but they also seemed to have, it seems to me, uh, a better sense of humour. They were more able to laugh at their situation because it was so frightening. Yeah, I think there was a unity to all that, wasn't there? I mean, there, I've written this before in an introduction to a book. <clears throat> but for me, you know, you can, some racing drivers you might dare to think of as your friends. Usually they're retired by the time you do. But you sort of look at these guys and how they are, and then you always feel something different when they get in the car. They've, they've gone on to another level. And I love that sort of, when you observe them together, even now they still have that kind of, camaraderie it's like fighter pilot sort of thing as opposed to ground mechanic the they're the guys pilot. that take the risk yeah the fighter pilot analogy is very interesting actually because those men who would go off flying either you know in fighters or in bombers and they did have this sort of slightly i mean in those days also rather boozy uh sort of devil may care uh, yeah external view but inside I mean Jochen clearly for this man who was so brave so quick so fearless quick, in a car yeah and 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 yet it was clear by uh, the end as, as Jackie Stewart was driving uh, the, the move towards safer circuits safer cars that Jochen was very much on Jackie's side yeah and I think I think that probably started with at the Tasman when he went to Lotus and then Montwick Park in 69. Describe that accident in Spain. Well, that's when you come over that brow, which must have been about 150, something like that, and you jump over the brow, and then that great big rear wing to which Chapman had added and added and added all through practice, suddenly on those stupid stilts, wobbles over and breaks and zero downforce on the back end all of a sudden and a massive shunt. Um, Graham had had his first, hadn't he? And then Jochen. That's right. And both, you know, the car was bent like a banana and Jochen had broken his nose and all because of these things that he hated so much. And I think that, and, you know, he was very well aware, like I guess they all were then, that it could happen to them. And some like Pedro and Jackie um, X had the sort of fatalistic view of it and others like Phil Hill, Jackie and whatever would sort of think, well, we need to do something about this. And I think that was one of the things that triggered it with Jochen. And if you remember, he wrote that open letter 
to Water Sport Motoring News, which was hugely critical of Chapman and Wings. Can you imagine, you know, Lewis doing that against Mercedes? Or, you know, Max writing about Red Bull Honda to, to the specialist magazines. It just would never happen. And there's a kind of honesty in that that I, and that was another reason the more I wrote about Jochen, the more I liked him. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because he came across to me as a much, much more human person from talking to everyone than I had thought him to be to begin with. Presumably, if Jochen had been racing today, he would have moved up the ladder much more quickly. I mean, he, he was kind of stuck for three years with an uncompetitive team. He was I know, it's ironic, isn't it? When you think he just came out of nowhere, bang, here I am in Formula 2, like Beloff did 20 years later. Yeah, he got stalled in a crappy Cooper. And actually, he wasn't, if you look at it, he wasn't that great in 65. And in 66, Surtees was always a bit quicker. And 67, okay, you know, he and Pedro were quite equally matched. Mm. And then suddenly, once he got into the Brabham, things began to gel more in Formula 1 for him. And by 69, 70, he was the quickest guy out there. The relationship between any driver and any team manager is always interesting. And you explain how Jochen had his difficulties with Roy Salvadori, who was then mm. the Cooper team. He got, got on very well with Jack Brabham, who seemed to have the sort of laid back Australian. Yeah, support. that interests me because Jack's, Jack was a funny guy, wasn't he? But Jack absolutely loved him. I think it was because he just got in the car and was uncomplicated and just wanted to go quick. And he, Jack and Jackie X didn't get on because Jackie was quite aloof. Uh, you know, Jack was never the most talkative guy, was he? Absolutely not. Although, funnily enough, um, for this book, Peter Collins did the interview. Um, and I'd given him a load of questions and Peter knew Jack very well and had his own questions as well. And listening to it, there was a sort of tittering laugh that, to begin with, I thought Peter had sent me a, an old interview with Denny because it was the same kind of laugh. And then you realise this is a side of Jack I'd never heard or seen before, just completely relaxed with someone he liked and got on with. And it was very interesting insight. And I think Jack liked the fact that Jochen didn't fiddle with the car too much, didn't try and reinvent the wheel, just got in and drove it. I think that's why they had such a strong relationship. And clearly it was a mutual one. But then you think of his relationship with Colin Chapman. Colin Chapman was providing him for the first time in his career with a car that would win races, a car that would win him the world championship. And yet the car was dangerously fragile. There were constant arguments between Jochen and, and, and Colin Chapman. I mean, the, I can remember just being on the edge of one of those uh, because uh, when Jochen failed to win the 1969 British Grand Prix after that wonderful battle uh, with um, with Jackie Stewart, and he, he would have won, I think he would. I think he would have, yeah. But the car failed him, failed him twice actually with the yeah with the fuel. And I happened to be standing behind the pits. This was before the days of sort of air-conditioned motorhomes. And Jochen would just go and change his overalls in the back of the truck. And I happened to be 
walking past the truck when Jochen came striding out, wouldn't even talk to Chapman, he just pushed past him, went straight into the back of the truck and started taking his overalls off. And me, the kind of humble little journalist with my notebook and pencil, went up and said, what happened, Jochen? And this tirade against Chapman came pouring out because the guy was in such a rage. And of course, in those days, racing drivers could say what they thought, yeah. which they can't do now. I was going to ask you about Jochen as a, as a test driver, because often when you have a driver with this huge natural ability, Ronnie Peterson is an example of this, they're hopeless at test driving. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't think Jochen was very good at that sort of thing. Mm. He just wanted to get he, in and drive it. Yeah, I think he would just drive the wheels off anything and probably adjust whatever was wrong with it just do whatever he thought he had to do but it's interesting the Chapman thing I'm sure an awful lot of it was a Chapman did not like criticism b he did not like drivers telling him what was wrong with his cars and if you think in the Tasman in 68 Jimmy and two of the mechanics had got a rotor blade from a helicopter and put it on the rear of the car like a wing and Jimmy was quite excited because he was being team manager and driver. And I'd phoned Colin and told him, actually felt quite good with that thing on. And Colin yelled at him and told him, get that off the car. I do not want that running. Nobody touches my cars. And that was with Jimmy, at, you know, right at the end of their relationship. So Jochen coming in and not a number one, not being Jimmy. Number two, possibly having a bit of a language barrier between the two of them and extremists and then telling him what was wrong with his car you know that was that was never going to be a happy relationship and it was only after all that aggro at Silverstone in 69 when Colin had sold the 49s and was going to make them all drive 63s which in itself was insane that was the four-wheel drive car yeah uh, that they all sort of banged heads together and finally in Germany came to some sort of truce but it was, I don't, I, it wouldn't have surprised me in a way if Jochen had gone somewhere else in 71. In the book, you've talked to people who raced against him. You've talked, obviously, to his wife, Nina. Uh, you've talked to team bosses. But you've also talked a lot to mechanics, and I always think that's a fascinating avenue to follow because yeah, it's interesting because they are working away, but they really see what happens. Yeah, and they see both sides or all sides, don't they? I mean, also mechanics regard Jochen. Was the affection? Was the awe? I don't well, know. I suppose the, the the mechanic we most should talk about is Ron, mm. Ron Dennis. Yeah, because the amazing thing is Ron Ron's first race was. Um, Monaco in 66 and when John joined the team in what three races time in France when he left Ferrari um, Jochen said that's the guy I want as my number one mechanic really yeah so he'd already observed the way Ron operated which even then was totally different to most other people you know Ron was a perfectionist and spent a huge amount of time preparing the car really thoroughly. And Jochen was shrewd enough to kind of look at it and think, hmm, yeah, I want him. Yeah. But I don't think there was a warm relationship between them. 
But I mean, in actual fact, when you think of what Braun went on to achieve and the standards he then set and demanded, Joachim was a key player in Braun's transition from the kid who'd been chosen above several other people back at the factory to join the race team. And then suddenly from being the, the kiddies, number one mechanic on the number two driver's car. Yeah. So, but I don't think there was a great relationship there. And what about at Team Lotus, where there was this kind of charged atmosphere? You talked, I think, to Eddie Dennis, among others. Were they just keeping their heads down? And they did, to be honest, because you know, it wasn't really the mechanic's place to get uppity, at Lotus in particular, was it? But they all loved Joachim because they knew when he got in the car, he would just give it everything. Mm. And he wasn't as easy as maybe Jimmy had been, but he certainly wasn't Graham mm. with his 28 things to do, including, you know, the steering wheel's too close, it's too far away. Mm. And, you know, they would leave it overnight and Graham would go, yeah, that's much better. So that was Graham's way of sort of psyching himself in a way. Um, I think Joachim was somewhere between Jimmy and Graham to the mechanics. But with the fact that he was so quick, if the car was good enough and lasted, he mm. was going to win them the race. He did some sports car racing, of course, and he won the Le Mans 24 Hours. That's a great story, isn't it? It's, it's one of the best chapters in the book. I love that story. Anybody that's so cool. has, uh, has, has got to, A, has got to buy the book. Um, and as we know, it was published 10 years ago as a superb tome costing, I don't know, 40 quid. Um, but now, 10 years on, to celebrate his... Uh, 50th anniversary. 50th anniversary, his death, um, ever bringing it out in a paperback. But one of the reasons why I remember loving it 10 years ago, and I've reread it again, is... It's a biography of one man, but in order to tell that story, you've had to tell the story <clears throat> of what racing was like in the 1960s and going into the 70s. Um, and it makes one realize how different motor racing was then. Well, of course it was different, it was 50 years ago, but it's not just the technology that was, in, was different. It's the whole way the heart of Formula One beat. Yeah. Different now. Does it seem like 50 years to you? Because it doesn't to me. Mm. You sort of think there's not a lot of drivers left from the 60s. What happened? Yeah, that's so true. Which is why, I mean, you've, Jackie Stewart wrote the foreword to this book. You've talked to Jackie a lot. Um, and it's, it, it's wonderful how you've done it because it's on two levels. You talk to Jackie because he and Jochen were such close friends. You talk to Jackie on a racing level, so he can describe minutely that battle at Silverstone in 1969. But you also talk to him a lot on, on the personal level. And Jackie is one of the few great drivers who, in his, he's over 80 now, of course, but you can still talk to him about the 50s and he's as animated and as informed and his detailed he, he can articulate his feelings as well, which a lot of people can't. I mean, that, the story is heartbreaking, of, but it's an absolute insight into an utter professional, the story of Monza when he goes out, you know, he's weeping for Jochen, then he goes out, goes faster than he's ever been all weekend. And then the minute he's back in 
even as he's driving into the pits, he can feel the tears again. And you think, mm -hmm. but for somebody with that sort of level of courage and humanity that Jackie had, and that sheer professionalism, and then the next day you go out and you race as hard as you can. Mm -hmm. And as he would say, you race past the spot where your, your best friend died the day before. You know, that is something that, that sort of heroism is something I love about that period of racing. Well, it doesn't, I mean, thank goodness, the danger has gone. Um, but Largely, but, oh, you know, we, gone, I mean, there are still the freak accidents. Oh, no, it can turn out and bite, thank God. It, you know, we, we had this discussion once where, you know, you wait at carousels for your baggage. And if the drivers are there, you take the mickey out of them, vice versa. And Joe Saywood and I were talking about it once in the car after we picked our bags up somewhere. And I just said, imagine if, you know, you were with these guys and you knew that by the end of the year, three of them would be gone. Mm. Yeah, that's what it was like when you were covering F2. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, every one of those hurts. And what was different then... Uh, not only were the drivers much more approachable, um, because there wasn't this sort of stalag feeling in the in the paddock. You could wander in and out and talk to people. There weren't the locked air-conditioned motorhomes where you know you couldn't penetrate. But also, you ended up staying in the same hotels, mm. sometimes propping up the same bar. Uh, often, if there was some sort of panic. Um, at the uh, at the Kaha desk when you just arrived, you'd find yourself sharing a heart yeah. with a, with a world champion. I remember uh, Piers Courage saying, "Come and have uh, supper with me at my hotel." Um, I was wearing a scruffy T-shirt, and of course, he was staying at the Ritz in um, Madrid, and I couldn't get into the dining room. I went, he walked into the dining room ahead of me and the maitre d' stood in front of me and said, look, I'm sorry, uh, you, you, you can't come in because you're not wearing a tie. And Pierce just gave me his hotel room and said, look, I'm in suite number, whatever, go and borrow a tie, which I, which I did. And we had a hilarious evening. And I think it was probably nine months after that, that he was killed. And so one felt one wasn't just a journalist scribbling away in the press room. Exactly. Mm. Writing this book, uh, I mean, I don't know how long the research took you, but the research is brilliant because you've talked to all the right people. I found reading it, I, I'd be saying, God, I wonder what, what Eddie Dennis would have thought about that. You turn the page and you've talked to Eddie Dennis. Th that is great research. Because that kind of research, it's funny, I guess it probably started when I was 14 or 15 and was buying autocar or being, being given autocar and motor, particularly with Ian Young's straight from the grid column, which told me a lot about drivers and other things didn't. Then I discovered autosport and motoring news. Yeah. So it all subliminally would have begun then. But... Um, yeah, you're right. It's it's wonderful when you can talk to these people. And as soon as you say, I'm doing a book on Jochen, to certain people, they're instantly on board. And the, the half the reason I did it was because I hate the idea that these guys ever get forgotten. Of all the people you talk to, 
who actually changed your mind, changed your perceptions of your Who did you? Oh, well, that's um, well, Jackie, mm. but Nick Guzzi from Penske. Yeah. Um, Uwe, his half brother. I mean, there were some people who were wonderfully kind to me along the way. I mean, obviously Heinz Preller, mm. who wrote the original Jochen book and did it in super quick time and was very generous. Um, just people like that who really knew him. Um, I mean, Nina was lovely. If you sat on a, uh, on a plane with, um, one often did, Sunday night, you jumped into your hire cars, you shot back for, to, to some little airport <clears throat> doing Austria or whatever, and then you'd then sit on the same plane and you would see the drivers who, I mean, you know, if you happen to be on a, chain, a, a plane with James Hunt when he'd won the race, or indeed, if you were on the plane when James Hunt had, had a huge accident, he would always be celebrating. But it was the driver's wives and girlfriends who really taught you something. And of course, Nina was so beautiful. She used to wear the, as you see in the lovely photographs. There's a one with the lovely green hat. She was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And when you're talking to somebody who was widowed 40 years ago, as it was 40 years ago when you wrote the book, how difficult was that, talking to Nina about Jochen 40 years after? There was nothing we didn't talk about. We've talked a couple of times since, and I'd love to meet her just because I think she's, she was and is a very special person. Um, but, yeah, when you talk to people like that, it's quite easy to get emotional with them. Mm. You know, and in a way you feel a little bit of a fraud because it's their grief but equally part of it's yours or it was yours when you were a kid or whatever, you know, it affects you to an extent, never to the same extent, but it certainly does. Um, and that's why, you know, I like writing books like this, but it's an interesting situation and you have to always tiptoe very carefully so that you don't tread on people's sensitivities while you're doing it. But equally you want to get the best, story and, and Jochen's is an incredibly poignant story isn't it? Well it is and it's awful because one would much prefer to read a book which had a happy ending, a racing driver like Jackie winning three world championships and or, or, or Sterling. Well David it is a great book um, why I personally think this book should be bought by everybody who loves Formula One, and particularly who loves Formula One history, uh, is that I don't think Jochen is top of mind for people when they think about great world champions, when they think about great racing drivers. Jochen is certainly in the English-speaking Formula One world. He is a bit of a forgotten man. David, it's a fabulous book. I'm delighted that it's now coming out in paperback because a lot of people who might have thought twice about buying it when it was a great big beautiful hardback will now be able to access it. So, and, and of course our friends at Evro, um, Mark, Mark Hughes looked after you when you were at, uh, when he was at Haynes, he's now looked after you when you were at Evro. I, I, I've written less than a tenth of the books that you've written. Um, but two of them were for, for Evro and for Mark Hughes, and he is a very patient man. Why do we love motor racing history so much? But we do. Great book. Thank you, David. And, Thank you. Uh, um, I'm very pleased that its arrival in paperback has meant that I have 
read this again. What I would say is just to you two gentlemen, absolutely fantastic conversation and thank you to you both. Um, David, I wish you continued success with the book and your future books. Thank you. And uh, we all look forward to welcoming you and uh, Simon back to Brooklyn just as soon as we can. I think we, we look forward to that, don't we, Simon, being allowed to go there. Thank you once again, gentlemen. Well, thank you for the invitation. Really appreciate it. No, Simon, that was brilliant it. as well. I enjoyed well, that. Great to talk to you. It's all, we've, we've had a lot of conversations down the years, so it's uh, nice having... It's nice to be in a comfortable, nice place having the conversation. Isn't it? Usually it was on an aeroplane like this. Zoom is brilliant, isn't it? And uh, you haven't got a flight to catch to go home, gentlemen, so uh, that's the perfect scenario.